So, I've always wanted to ask, if you believe in a loving God, how could he send people to hell? Is that a question you've asked? Have your friends put that one to you and you've had no idea how to answer? It's one of the most difficult, I think, but I believe we can reason our way through it. So let's start the conversation, and I do mean that. If you have comments to add or extra questions to put to us, please do it via the socials, uh, and we'll do our best to address them. In 2019, many of us watched our TV screens in absolute horror as the news flashed around the world that a young Aussie guy had attacked two moths in Christchurch, New Zealand. I won't say his name because the New Zealand government have declared that his name will not be mentioned. He killed 51 people and injured 40 others claiming without remorse that he wanted to inflict as many fatalities as possible. Was he deliberately doing something evil? Did he do this out of his free will or was he a product of his terrible background, maybe mental illness or brainwashing by far-right groups? Some people believe that those who are involved in horrific crimes are powerless as they are purely products of their past experiences, often horrific in themselves. But if a human soul's desire to do evil is purely a result of our neurological patterns firing a certain way, then surely the opposite must also be true. If there's no such thing as evil, then maybe love doesn't exist either and there's no such thing as heroism or selfless sacrifice. It's all just neurological patterns. So if this white terrorist cannot be judged guilty for his actions, then neither can Mother Teresa be commended for her example of selfless love towards the poorest of the poor on the streets of Bombay. Now we're starting to scratch away at our deepest belief that there is a moral fabric to the universe and that right and wrong are more than just ideas and that you and I, weak and influenced by our worlds as we are, are capable of love and cruelty. Now, last week, Rick spoke about three of the major reasonings for the belief in the existence of God. And one of the most powerful is this innate sense of right and wrong, which is at the core of every human being. Rebecca McLaughlin wrote an excellent book called Confronting Christianity, and she said this, Our circumstances, genetics, and deep past are certainly factors in our decisions. But unless we're willing to rob humans entirely of their moral agency, we must sometimes say that evil is evil and that it comes from the heart. And if we cannot say this, we must also never say that love is love. If we're really honest, we all know that there are no good guys and bad guys. We like to think of ourselves as good people. But Jesus stomped all over that fallacy with some of his tough teaching. Here's some from Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount, when he said, Your ancestors have been taught never commit adultery. However, I say to you, if you look with lust in your eyes at a woman who is not your wife, you've already committed adultery in your heart. 
Can you imagine running the Me Too movement through the filter of Jesus' version of right living? There would not be a man or a woman left who wasn't accused. The principle that Jesus is teaching here is that evil starts in our hearts. Hopefully we can discipline our outward behaviour, but God looks so much deeper. How many of our close friendships or marriages would last even a day if we could actually see each other's deepest thoughts? Sure, we think lots of loving thoughts too, but there's also bitterness and jealousy and pride and greed. The Russian author Solzhenitsyn knew there were no good guys and bad guys. As he was lying on rotting straw in a Soviet gulag, he wrote this. Gradually, it was disclosed to me that the line separating good and evil passes not through states, not through classes, nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart. Okay. So maybe we can accept that there is a thing called sin and that we are all guilty in some way. What does that have to do with a loving God and the concept of hell? You know, some of the most confronting teaching about hell actually comes from the words of Jesus. Yes, Jesus, gentle Jesus, meek and mild. One of the cornerstone passages of his teaching is in uh, Matthew chapter 25, and I've edited it for the sake of brevity, but it, it goes like this. When the Son of Man appears in his majestic glory, all the nations will be gathered together before him, and like a shepherd he will separate all the people that... The sheep will be on his right side and the goats on his left. Then the king will turn to those on his right and he will say, you have a special place in my father's heart. Come and experience the full inheritance of the kingdom realm that has been destined for you from before the foundation of the world. For when you saw me hungry, you fed me. When you found me thirsty, you gave me drink. When I had no place to stay, you invited me in. And then the godly will answer him, Lord, when do we see you hungry or thirsty and give you food and something to drink? And the king will answer them, don't you know, when you cared for one of the least of these, my little ones, you demonstrated love for me. Then to those on his left, the king will say, leave me, for you are under the curse of eternal fire that has been destined for the devil and all the demons. For when you saw me hungry, you gave me no food. And when you saw me thirsty, you gave me no drink. And they will say, Lord, when do we see you hungry or thirsty and not give you food and something to drink? Don't you know, when you refuse to help one of the least important among these, my little ones, you refuse to help and honour me and they will depart from his presence into eternal punishment. But the godly and beloved sheep will enter into eternal bliss. Jesus' teaching is clear. There will be an account of how we have invested our lives in the needs of others. Does this sound fair to you? Well, let's imagine the opposite. Let's imagine Jesus saying, don't worry, it doesn't matter how you invest your life. Live for yourselves, ignore the poor and the marginalised. I don't really care. Do you think that sounds more like the loving God we like to imagine, the all-accepting one? 
I think you were starting to feel that moral DNA wrestling inside of you because God's love and his justice, his judgment cannot be pulled apart. Think of again of the anger you felt when that gunman mowed down dozens of Muslim worshippers. Think of the outrage you feel when you hear of the thousands of young children being trafficked across this planet. You feel anger because you know love, not despite it. The more we love humanity, the more anger is kindled in us through injustice. This is a reflection of God's DNA in us. Now, let me give you an interesting sidebar. When we think about the judgment of God, we usually get a bit nervous. It's a a negative picture in our head. It's like God judging us down. Now, have a listen to these verses from, from Psalm 96. Let the skies sing for joy. Let the earth join in the chorus. Let oceans thunder and fields echo this ecstatic praise. For here he comes, the Lord God, and he's ready to judge the world. It's like, yippee, I'm so excited. God's coming to judge us. In several Psalms, you had the poet begging God to bring judgment. It's a cause of rejoicing. Why? Well, Christians tend to think of judgment as a courtroom where we are being prosecuted for crimes we have committed. It's like we're sitting on the left waiting to have the book thrown at us by the judge. The ancient Jews saw themselves in the opposite way. They saw themselves as the plaintiffs, those who were wronged. It's like they're sitting on the right side and, and they can't wait for their day in court to see justice done and their rights restored. They want to make their case to the judge and ask him to fix it. Have you ever been in a place where you've been wrongly accused? You can't wait for judgment. But only if the judge is fair and righteous. Now let's hear the last part of that psalm. He will do what's right and can be trusted to always do what's fair. We hear people say, how could a loving God judge? I think I can say, how could a loving God not judge? So let me turn the question around. Instead of asking, how could a loving God send people to hell? Perhaps we should ask, how could a loving God not send all of us to hell? And here is where a dire situation gets filled with the incredible sunshine of God's mercy. Here is where we get to the absolute crux of the wonder of God's love. But God, full of mercy, slow to anger and full of compassion, pursues his beloved and sinful children, calling them back home despite what we've done. This is the great rescue plan of the universe. And it looks like this. This is Salvador Dali's beautiful painting of the sacrificial death of Christ. But how does Jesus' painful death mean that I don't have to sit under the judgment that I deserve. 
Well, I want to share with you an insight that I hadn't seen before I looked at it this week. When Jesus was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane before his crucifixion, he was in absolute emotional agony. And he prayed these words to God. If it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not my will but yours be done. Now, I've read that dozens and dozens of times and I always read the cup as referring to the suffering he had to go through, like uh, let this pain pass by me but not my will but yours, God. Now, the original hearers of the Gospels, they knew their Old Testament back to front and they heard something very different. The image of the cup is used in many places in the Old Testament, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel. Here's an example from the book of Job. Let their own eyes see their destruction. Let them drink the cup of the wrath of the Almighty. In the Old Testament, the cup of wrath, of of anger, was symbolic of, of God's anger, which was served up to nations whose sinful abuses, child sacrifices, rejection of God and exploitation of the poor have incurred the Lord's judgment. And here is Jesus kneeling on the ground, begging for this cup to pass him by. To the first gospel readers, the meaning was clear. Jesus faced drinking down the righteous anger and judgment of God against the sin of mankind on an epic scale. God's anger at the sin of mankind in the past and all that would come in the future. God's anger at the Holocaust. God's anger at the slave trade. God's anger at who knows what atrocity will happen in the future. God's anger at abuse and murder and cruelty and neglect. God's anger at my pettiness and jealousy and greed. And it was all poured out on Jesus at the cross. That was what he dreaded. Not the nails in his hands. Jesus provided a way for us. He has dealt with the sin of our world. It will be judged and justice will come, but we can be safely hidden in the righteousness of Jesus. Our part? Like the story of the prodigal son. Humble ourselves. Recognise where true home is and run back to the Father. I've still got a million questions in my mind. Like, what about people who've never heard about Jesus? Or what about the righteous, faithful followers of other religions? I don't know. But I hang on to this. He will do what's right and can be trusted to always do what's fair. So here is where the conversation has led me so far. 
Is it reasonable to believe that there will be a just accounting for our lives on this earth and that justice will ultimately be done? Yes. Is it reasonable to believe that the grace, love and sacrifice of Jesus Christ will be the reason that we can live forever in the kingdom of heaven despite our sinfulness? Yes. Is it reasonable to believe that some souls will not be prepared to lay down their pride and selfishness, to accept the love and grace of God and live in his presence eternally? Yes. Is it reasonable to call the life that this attitude leads to outside the kingdom of God, hell? Yes. The God who will ultimately judge every soul on this planet is the God who died to save every soul on this planet. We can find ourselves totally at peace with that thought. But let's keep the conversation going. Still got questions? So do I. You can post on the socials. Let's keep chatting about this together.